Yeah, so tonight we're going to talk about the Last Supper. And the main point I was trying to get across last night, and I, or last week, the main, t- main point I was trying to get across last week, same point in a lot of ways this week, is the intentionality of Jesus. The way this last week of his life, um, the, the, all of the Gospels kind of zoom in and spend an inordinate, inordinate amount of time on the last week of Christ. Because those are the events that really matter. Christianity is first and foremost about something that actually happened. Gospel means good news. It's news about something that happened. It's not just some ideas for you to consider. It's news that happened that changes everything. And it's news that's been coming for a long, long time. One of the things that we're going to see here again tonight is that Jesus very intentionally connects what's going on in this last week with the Old Testament and all that God has been teaching in various ways about who he is and what he intends to do about the problem of sin and brokenness. So we're going to read this passage. This time we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 26. We're going to start at verse 6. I'm going to say just something really briefly about the anointing, because I know we talked about the anointing last week, but it's interesting to see how Matthew brings it out as well. And then we're going to um, dig into the rest of this from the, the Last Supper. So this is God's Word. Matthew 26, verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar, very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad. and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. 
The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You've said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you. These somber, sober events, we thank you that they're recorded here for us. We pray that you'd open our hearts and open our eyes to see your beauty, even through these stories. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we talked about you know, last night, the anointing is one of these situations where Jesus is teaching them about what's coming, but they don't get it, right? And I, I, I just wanted to make this point because I didn't make it last week. Normally, you anoint someone's body you pour perfume on someone's body in the Jewish burial customs after they're dead. But there was one exception to that, and that was a criminal who was to be executed. So even at this point, when Jesus says what she's doing, whether she realizes it or not, what she's doing is what my father has prepared for one who would die as a criminal. Now, that's pretty interesting. She lavishes love on him. And Jesus says, this is the anointing for my burial. The disciples must have been like, what? Like, it doesn't even make any sense, Jesus. But as this whole night, this whole week goes on, that's their response over and over again. This doesn't make any sense what's going on. Judas bails, right? Now, we talked about this a little bit. Um, John's gospel, you know, written a little later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, gives a little extra information. He says, you know, what you need to remember, all of the disciples were complaining about this waste and wondering, like, why wouldn't we save this or sell this perfume and then give the money to the poor? That seems reasonable, but Jesus said there's more going on here than you realize, But Judas, in particular, had been stealing money, John's gospel says, and was the one who held on to the money bag. But there is some evidence in the gospels that Judas Iscariot is a zealot. And if that's true, then I think there's another little hint here about what's going on with Judas. Judas, The zealots were people that thought that they needed to take up arms to drive out the Romans. They were committed to guerrilla warfare to deal with the Romans rather than um, just kind of being passive, rather than kind of cooperating with the Romans. Because at this point, like the king, King Herod, is, is a Jewish king, but he's a puppet king. The Pharisees 
That means literally the pure ones, the ones who are set apart, or the ones who are saying, if we uh, make ourselves holy and spotless, then that will enter into the kingdom of God. That God will bless us if we really are pure and we're not compromising with the Romans like King Herod and the chief priests. But then you have the, the zealots who are saying, that's not going to work. We need to take up arms. And then Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings, comes. And Judas is part of his band. But Judas doesn't like it when Jesus keeps insisting that he's going to his death. I, I think the context of this event, which is right after Jesus has said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, is just too much for Judas. He doesn't just, he doesn't get paid off. He actually goes of his own volition to betray Jesus. Do you see that? The money comes afterwards, and the money actually isn't even very much money. Do you know what 30 pieces of silver was? Well, that was the fine you would have to pay if your ox gored a slave and killed them. So Jesus is basically betrayed for what a slave would have been worth. And believe me, slaves weren't worth very much. So it's not a lot of money. It's not like Judas was induced by this fortune. No, he goes, I think not just because he's disappointed, but because he's enraged that Jesus is not going to bring the deliverance that he thinks needs to happen. And I do think it's worth thinking about, you know, when you think about Judas, it's real easy for us to sort of look down our noses at him and be like, how could it? How, how could anybody do this? You know, I do wonder, what would it take for you or for me to betray Jesus? What disappointment would make you this close to depraying Jesus? You know, every time we choose sin, we, in a sense, are betraying Jesus. What's our price? What's our price? What, what, what could Jesus do that would make you so mad at him that you would want to, that you'd want to quit following him? It's worth asking. It's worth thinking about. Jesus is seen as of so little value. And I do think that, you know, in Isaiah 53, which predicts so much of what this last week is about, it says that that basically we esteemed him not. That means we didn't consider Jesus weighty or of any value. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, we keep, every week we gather, we sing songs, we look at these, these rich words, these God-given words, so that Jesus would become more beautiful and believable. He'd become more weighty in our lives. Preparations are made. Now, the Passover meal was a very, um, very particular ritual that the Jews did. You know, it was the commemoration of God delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt. And one of the interesting things about the meal is that the meal 
um, had four cups of wine at various points. Also had this really interesting um, place in, in the ceremony where a young boy was supposed to ask his father, what did all of this mean? Which is it's interesting to remember, the ritual was never supposed to be just a ritual. It was to be a ritual that would raise questions that would lead you to tell the story of redemption. That was the design. It was never just supposed to be disconnected, just something that you went through by rote. Built into the ritual was the question that would evoke the story so that you could remember again who God was and what he had done. But you remember they eat it unleavened bread. Now, what's the significance of that? Unleavened bread because they didn't have time for the bread to rise. When God came, they had to get up and they ate it, you remember, dressed like they were ready to go on a journey. All of these things to help God's people understand that we're not home yet. That his deliverance, this idea of the in-between, the already and the not yet, this tension, God is at work, but things are not yet fully right. And you see that actually in, in, this, in the words of Jesus when he says, okay, I'm giving you this cup. This is the cup, the cup of my blood, the cup of the new covenant. And then he says, I'm not going to drink again. And, and what he's talking about is he's not going to drink the fourth cup with them this night. He's not going to drink the fourth cup. It's really interesting. Um, the, the fourth cup, well, I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm jumping ahead of myself here. Um, but, but, but the fourth cup is, is just really um, interesting. Let me, let, me, let me back up. Because the preparations are made. Um, they gather together. And, um, and then you get to this prediction of Judas' betrayal. Judas's betrayal. Now, imagine this. You're eating this meal, it's going along fine, and all of a sudden, just out of the blue, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. Now, you, you read this, and maybe you've seen like this depicted in a movie, and, and it's always hard to know, like, they didn't know that Judas was the one, okay? And you might, you read this, verse 23, Jesus says, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. But what you need to understand is they'd all dip their hand in the bowl with him, right? So if you try to picture this, the bowl is being passed around. So they've all shared the bowl. They've all dipped their bread into this bowl, okay? But then there's this extra line where, you know, Judah says, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answers, you have said so. It's really difficult to render this into the English, but it's a very ambiguous thing. Uh, so it's not, a, it's not a tell. It's not a giveaway. It does seem that Matthew understood what was going on, but he's so stunned he doesn't even know how to, how to speak, how to talk about it, Right? And, and, there's, and you, you read this and you're like, whoa, I want to know more about what happened and who thought what. And of course, you don't get some of that information that you would love to have. But here's the point. You know, Judas, one of the 12, was not obvious. It was not obvious to the rest of them. And, and that's, that's important. Even though he was, in his heart, despising what Jesus was about, it wasn't obvious to the others. 
God's word is fulfilled in the fact that there is this betrayal, and yet Judas, you see this picture of divine sovereignty? It's as the scriptures foretold, but it's also Judas who is responsible for what he does. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility, clearly here. Now we get to the Lord's Supper. Now you know that there are different Christian denominations that have different views about the Lord's Supper, right? And a lot of debate about what Jesus' words actually mean, okay? But here's the thing that seems clear that everybody agrees on, that Jesus wants his followers to commemorate his death until he comes again. D.A. Carson in his commentary uh, on Matthew brings out some helpful points. I'm going to share a couple of those with you and add a couple of my own. Uh, When he says, this is my body, those words were not part of the Passover ritual. So when when he picks up the bread and breaks it and says, this is my body broken for you, like that's not part of the Passover. That's like, whoa, Jesus just went off script. And, and you got to understand, you don't go off script when you're doing the Passover. Like the Bible is really clear. God has laid down really clear. Here's what you do. And Jesus is going off script. That's kind of their first clue, I guess, that something, something's going on here. The words, this is my body, must have been really shocking. And the breaking of the bread and the distribution of it are probably significant. In other words, the symbolism is Jesus' body must be broken and all must partake of him. And and when you think about this sacrifice language, it's really clearly about sacrifice. There are a lot of people that want to talk about, you know, what Jesus was about and did he really mean to die as a sacrifice. He seems to be clearly showing that what he's doing is going to um, feed or, um, you know, be partaken of by everybody. It's really interesting. Um, if we look at Exodus 24, look at Exodus. I put it in your, in your, uh, in your little book here or in your little outline. Um, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls. The other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, read it aloud to the people, and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is the blood of the covenant. Like that language comes right out of the history of Israel. Except now Jesus is saying it's not the blood of a lamb, This is my blood of the covenant. So he's putting himself in place of the lamb. Like you can't miss it, particularly if you're a Jew who knows that. You know that language. That's part of the origin story of Israel. It's like part of what it means to be Jewish. You know that language. And now Jesus takes it to himself. Now, when Jesus says, this is my body, you know, people debate Martin Luther and the Catholics and the guy named Zwingli, they all debate, is, is it a metaphor, is it, here, here's what I think, I, I don't think you need to get so caught up on that. What you need to see is 
the way Jesus is connecting what's going on with the Passover meal. Here's the way D.A. Carson says, what must be remembered is that this is a Passover meal. You remember what Passover is about? Passover is when you put the blood on the doorpost, the blood of the lamb, then the, the angel of death will pass over. The judging angel, God in judgment, is going to pass over only if you're covered by blood. That's the, the imagery. So this is the Passover meal. The new rite that Jesus institutes has links with redemptive history. It's not just out of the blue new thing that he does. As the bread has just been broken, so will Jesus' body be broken. And just as the people of Israel associated their deliverance from Egypt with eating the paschal meal prescribed as a divine ordinance, so also Messiah's people, Jesus' people, are to associate Jesus' redemptive death with eating this bread by his authority. He, in other words, this meal is, is what makes you who you are if you're Jewish. You're the redeemed people who've been rescued from slavery. And you eat this meal as a reminder of what God has done and also who you are. And that's what Jesus says here too. Just as God's people ate the first Passover, anticipating the deliverance that was to come, because this is before they crossed the Red Sea, right? The Passover meal is before that. So also, when Christians celebrate the Lord's Supper, it has past, present, and future aspects. I love the way the Apostle Paul brings this out in 1 Corinthians 11. He says that whenever we gather as Christians to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember his death. And then he says we proclaim his death. We do this in remembrance of him, is actually the wording, and we proclaim his death until he comes again. So we remember, we proclaim in the present, preach. So the sacraments are the gospel preached in a picture. Because God knows that we need all the help we can get. So he gives us the gospel preached in a picture. And we're to preach this picture until he comes again. In one sense, you could say that the meal nourishes us, but it also whets our appetite because Jesus hasn't drank the fourth cup yet. See, Jesus gives us something and, the God, and, and, and there's something preached at us. I love the way um, this hymn that we sing sometimes, Arise, My Soul, Arise. You know that hymn? Arise, My Soul, Arise by Charles Wesley. Shake off thy guilty fear. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. That's a communion hymn. If you want to understand what is communion, communion is, look, here, taste and see that the Lord is good. The gospel is being preached in a picture. Remember what he's done. It needs to be proclaimed right now to you because we need it proclaimed over and over and over again until he comes again. That's what's going on here. The power in the Lord's Supper is not just us thinking about it and remembering what he did. Paul says that's part of it. We do it in remembrance, but he says that it proclaims, we proclaim. 
There's a preaching of the gospel. Just as when we preach the gospel, we pray that God's spirit will make the foolishness of preaching effectual, that your eyes will be opened to see Jesus as more beautiful and believable. And that's what happens in the sacraments. It's the same. The spirit comes and opens our eyes to see the beauty. As I said, there are four cups at the Passover meal. The fourth cup, well, the third is the cup of blessing. And that's, what, that's the one that Jesus drinks with them. But he says he's not going to drink again. In other words, he's not going to drink the fourth cup. The fourth cup is called the cup of promise. And the promise is what? It's the promise of the covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. So while Jesus says, I'm going to bless you, you, need to, you I'm, going to, I'm going to die this sacrificial death, the fullness of what it means for me to be your God and you to be my people, that is not going to be drank together until kingdom come. And that's where we live. We live remembering what Jesus has done, proclaiming it regularly to our hearts and to our friends, to our family as we gather together. It's why we don't do the Lord's Supper in private. I don't know, you know, maybe some of you come from traditions where that's not a big deal. seems clear from 1 Corinthians that we're to do it when the body gathers. Because it's not just a little private mystical thing between you and God. It's about the whole body gathering together for the, for the, the gospel to be proclaimed through this sacrament. It's a, it's a community building sacrament. Now here's what's interesting. Not only do we live in the midst of the already, not yet, but so does Jesus. Jesus isn't drinking the fourth cup yet. Have you ever thought about that? I think sometimes we're in the midst of struggle. We find it difficult to believe that Jesus can still relate. Because Jesus is now resurrected. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father, but he has not yet drank the fourth cup with us. Isn't that amazing? Jesus knows what it's like to live with longing. Whenever we commune with him in this supper, again, we remember, we proclaim, and we look forward to his coming again when we will have a great feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and finally drink the fourth cup. And then Jesus leads him in worship. It says here that he sang a hymn. Most scholars believe that he would have sung the, the psalms that they sang at the Passover. And, and they were Psalms 114 through 118. I think it's fascinating to go back, especially, you know, sometime during this week, read those psalms and think about what it would have been like, not just to be led by Jesus in singing those songs on the night of the Last Supper, but how about after Jesus has died, and been resurrected, how these psalms must have sounded to the disciples. I want us to read a little bit of, uh, of Psalm 118. You know, Psalm 118, verse 22, is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the whole New Testament. You know what it is? It's the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. That's the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Isn't that fascinating? Doesn't seem like a verse that you were probably taught to memorize as a child. You know, seems like there's so many other better verses. Come on. 
Why that verse? Well, that verse perfectly captures what the disciples experienced. We didn't know what was going on. Jesus actually was the capstone, but the builders rejected him. We were clueless, and the people he came to save, the people that were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, those same people a week later are saying, crucify him, crucify him. We want Barabbas instead. We want the murderer instead of the one who will die for us. Let's read um, Psalm 118. I put it on your, on your thing here so we could read it together because that way we'll all have the same translation. Do you think we could do that? Yeah, let's read it together. I think even stand, let's stand. We'll read it together, I'll close in prayer, and then we'll sing the doxology. This is Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. In my anguish, I cried to the Lord, and he answered by setting me free. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They swarmed around me like bees, but they died out as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O oh Lord, save us. O oh Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us with bows in hand. Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. 
Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Lord, we do thank you that Jesus, even in your distress, even as you looked at the cross that was soon to come, you still sang a psalm with your brothers. And um, Lord, it must have been like what you must have known was coming. Lord, we, uh, we so often doubt your love. We so often feel forgotten by you. But Lord, we pray that we would remember even this week what it must have been like for you to walk so determined to a torturous death because nothing else would do to save the people you loved. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.